0: what a treat and blessing it is to hear of the work of God in an individual life you know we see god's works all around us in creation and we read of god's works throughout history uh, sometimes those works of god in other people's lives historically seem a little detached from our lives and it's always encouraging and a, a fresh reminder when we get to hear God's grace in another person's life who's walking alongside of us here in our local church. So praise God for his grace in Stan's life, and we praise him for his grace in our lives. If you would, please go with me to Genesis chapter 45. That's where we will be this morning. Battling a little bit of a cold, so hopefully I won't be hacking away on the podcast or sniffling. We shall see. As one commentator puts it, now, as we come to chapter 45, finally, after such a long climb, the narrative has reached the climax. We get that today. And it is nice to be able to bring this Joseph story, which we've been in for a good while now, it is nice to bring this Joseph story to a climactic stopping point today Because next week we will begin Advent. So yes, as a church we do uh, Advent. We'll talk a little more about that next week as we prepare ourselves for Christmas. And as we, through Christmas, uh, reach a point of solidarity with ancient Israel as they're waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, We too will spend December waiting to celebrate Christmas. And also it's it's a reminder that we are living in a period of waiting. As we await the second coming of Christ. So just as the Old Testament saints of God were waiting for the first coming of Christ. So we wait for the second coming of Christ. And so we will stop Genesis after today. And we will move to Advent over December for Sundays. And then the Christmas Eve service. And for Advent we will be doing a deep dive into Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. And this is exciting for those of us who have uh, been coming to the Men's Ministry Bible Studies because we've been going through Philippians and we'll actually finish that up on the 3rd of December. So uh, for those of us who've gone through this study, it will, it, this passage will be well situated for us to study over a four-week period and just to go deep into this wonderful Christological hymn that really is a, a doctrinal presentation of Christmas, what Christmas is about. But today we are still in Genesis. There are still five chapters left after today. And so we will return to Genesis uh, after the new year. And we will be finishing up this book with those five latter chapters before we move on to our next series. Today in chapter 45, we have the climactic reunion of brothers. Joseph and his brothers are finally reunited And Jacob receives the news that his son is still alive. So we've been waiting and waiting for this moment, and then today we get it. Now we won't find today the reunion of Joseph and Jacob. We'll have to wait for that at a later time. But we will at least today get the news going into Jacob's ears and into his heart that the son whom he thought he had lost 20 years now, he's been mourning, is actually still alive. What a wonderful, joyful passage we are in today. As we think about everything that God has done so far, everything that has gone before really in the story of Genesis as a whole, but specifically in the story of Joseph, there is one word that towers over every other. And it is a word that you've probably heard many times, providence. God has been sovereignly orchestrating every event in order to accomplish his purposes. This is one of the premier stories in all of the Bible for this doctrine that we call providence, that God governs, God rules, God directs in big things, in small things, on a national and international level and in the minutia of the daily lives of his people, of all people, God is providentially working. I like the way Donald Gray Barnhouse summarizes what we've seen so far. So this is uh, in order to summarize what we've seen, but to focus us on providence. A little bit of of a review here, but listen to all of the things that have piled up in our minds as we've gone through the story of Genesis that have pointed to God's providence. The jealous hatred of brethren, The dreams of a youth, the passage of a caravan bound for Egypt, the preparation of Joseph by a life of adversity, the anger of Pharaoh and the imprisonment of two officials, the strange dreams of these prisoners and Joseph's supernatural gift of interpretation, the dreams of Pharaoh... The change of rainfall in a fourth of Africa to bring about the two cycles of abundance and famine by the flood and failure of the Nile. The elevation of Joseph to the throne of Egypt. All of these things were brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God who is Lord over all in order to fulfill the counsel of His will. This is the God who has presented Himself to us as we've been walking through this story of Joseph. And I hope that this is the God whom you know, the God whom you call Father, the God whom you pray to, the God whom you bow your face before, your knees, and pray to Him and seek His. Will The God in, in whom you've put your trust and your hope. That you've believed in this God through Christ, His Son. That Christ whom He sent. As Jesus says repeatedly in the Gospel of John. That the Father has sent me. I am the one whom the Father has sent. Repeated language. That you would believe that God sent His only Son to save us. And that by believing in Him, you have life. This is our God And I just want to remind us once again of this truth. If God is able to orchestrate all of this that I just read, all of these details, and I, you, we remember that caravan just happens to pass by while Joseph is in the pit. All of these little details. If God is able to orchestrate all of that, why would you not, Christian, Why would you not entrust every detail of your life into his hands? Why would you not entrust all of your fears, all of your worries, all of your sicknesses and inconveniences and discomforts and all the things you don't like about your life and the things you do like about your life? Why would you not entrust them into the hands of this God? If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Genesis 45, as I said before, and we will read to the end of the chapter, verses 1 to 28. This is God's word. It's perfect and profitable for his people. It is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler of, over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph... Which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and just thank him for the privilege that we have of being able to look at this text. Today. Father, we thank you for your Spirit, all of his many works glorifying Christ among us, as Jesus promised the disciples in his last hours with them before he went to the cross that the Spirit would come and he would work and He would convict, and He would comfort, and come alongside of, and that He would lead us in prayer, and that He would glorify Christ. Father, we thank You that He, the Spirit, has inspired the prophets, the apostles, and all those who have written Holy Scripture. And we come now to this wondrous ministry of the Holy Spirit as we sit under his inspired word. We ask, Father, that your spirit would illuminate what he himself has inspired. We pray that you would convict us of our sins, that you would comfort us with your mercies, that you would show us the hope that awaits us, the glorious inheritance of the saints. That our minds would be fixed on you and that we would trust you with our lives. With all the things about our lives that we do not like. Or that we wish were different. That we would trust you and we would rest and we would serve you and be lost in seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Father, thank you for Genesis chapter 45. Thank you for the work that you did in the lives of Joseph and his brothers and Jacob. Thank you, Father, that we get to sit here and study this wondrous passage. We pray that this time would not be taken for granted, but that it would be used wisely. And we pray for the preaching of your word, that it would be clear, that it would be penetrating to the heart, that it would be accurate, and that it would be blessed by your Spirit. We pray... That you would convict our hearts of sin and that you would bring sinners to yourself, God. We pray for those among us who are not converted. Who maybe uh, think they are Christians because of things they've done. Or because of a prayer they prayed when they were a kid or something of that sort, Father. We pray that you would take away that deception and that you would show them their lostness today. That they might grab hold of Christ, crucified, be forgiven. Be renewed in their life, as just as, as Stan talked about earlier, that the works of the flesh would fall away and the works of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit would take hold. We pray for that, God, for, for new converts to Christ, and we pray for all of us who are already converted that we would grow into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the title this morning for the sermon is The Brothers reunited. The brothers reunited. And there are three movements to this climactic reunion in chapter 45, this climactic reunion of these brothers that I want us to focus on. Three movements of this chapter. First, a shocking revelation. And this is where we will spend most of our time. So as we get to the end of the sermon uh, and you think, oh my goodness, we've only covered one point which you may think that uh, often, I don't know. (laughs) But if you get that way today, just be assured that we're going to spend most of our time today here on a shocking revelation. Secondly, a supplied return. And then thirdly, a skeptical reception. So first, let's look at a shocking revelation. This story opens on a dramatic Note, Joseph is so overwhelmed with Judah's account and plea that he demands everyone but his brothers leave the room and he erupts into weeping. Imagine, Joseph has been trying to hold it all together for all this time. I mean, we've seen him just break out into weeping twice, We saw him on that initial visit, and we saw later there with Benjamin, and now he just breaks down. I mean, he turns into a puddle of tears. Joseph has just repeatedly heard the word father in the speech of Judah. Judah has just referenced some 14 times his father, Jacob. Judah's father is Joseph's father. He's heard repeatedly mention of his father. Whom he hasn't seen in over two decades. He has been told that his father is still alive. The old man. And that all these years he has mourned Joseph's death. Thinking that he was torn to pieces by wild animals. Joseph has watched God transform the hearts of his brothers. And now. Judah, their representative, is willing to sacrifice his own freedom for the sake of Benjamin. Uh, Judah is willing to stand in the place of Benjamin. He wants Benjamin to be released and he himself to be kept back in Egypt. For the sake of Benjamin, yes, but even more for the sake of his father. Because he knows that if the brothers go back without Benjamin, the other son of Rachel, uh, Jacob, will die from mourning. It will be too much for him to bear. And so we see Joseph sees the transformation of his brother's hearts. And three times now, Joseph has, has watched his brothers come and bow down before him. As though it, if he were to miss the first one or maybe miss the second one. Three times he has seen the dreams that God gave to him fulfilled as his brothers have prostrated themselves before him. All of this, just too much to bear. His father, the changed hearts of his brothers, the fulfillment of all of God's words. He's overwhelmed and he just turns into a puddle of tears. So he is understandably overwhelmed and now, finally, he will reveal himself to his brothers. They have passed all of his tests. Remember last week. We looked at the final test. The final test is. What will they do. With Benjamin. Will they do with Benjamin. When given the opportunity. The very same thing that they did. Two decades ago with Joseph. Will they get rid of this other. Favored son. Of the favored. Wife. Will they pass that test. And Now. Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. And as he does this, we see four things. And these four things will occupy our time for this first point, a shocking revelation. And Here's what they are if you want to write them down, if, you, if you're a note taker. I realize not everyone is a note taker. So this is just there for you to help guide you along. Four things. First, identification, then explanation, then instruction, and finally affection. So let's look at each of those. First, identification. Joseph identifies himself. Look at verses three and four. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Notice there is no interpreter here. Previously, as Joseph is talking with his brothers, he needs an interpreter because Joseph is speaking Egyptian. And his brothers speak Hebrew. So there is an interpreter between them. But there is no interpreter here. Everyone has been asked to leave. Here, Joseph addresses them in Hebrew. Hebrew. And he brings them in close so that they can see him. Now, Joseph would have been shaved all over. He would have been dressed in the finest regalia that Egypt had to offer. He would have looked essentially like Pharaoh wearing that signet ring, you remember, with the golden chain and all of the other things that that identified him as a chief ruler in Egypt. Looked nothing like these guys with their torn clothing, From a famished Canaan. But here he is. Speaking to them in their language. Drawing them in close. So they can see his facial features. He is their brother. Joseph. Whom they sold into Egypt. As we would expect. They are dismayed. Or in other translations. They are terrified. This is not just in awe and wonder. This is not just what? confused. This is terror. This is a sense of angst. This is a sense of fear. They are terrified. This Lord of the land, imagine, this Lord of the land who has the power to do with them whatever he pleases is the very brother. I mean, inconceivable. This is one of the most incredible stories ever told in human history. This Lord of the land is the very brother whom they so unjustly and cruelly mistreated 20 years ago. You can imagine this terror that overcomes these guys as they probably almost faint, fall out on the ground. But instead of any kind of rebuke, or retaliation whatsoever, Joseph offers only comfort and explanation of all that has happened. Not a single fearful word to them, not a single rebuke, not a single biting remark about their sin. He offers to them only comfort, but this comfort is couched within an explanation of what's been happening. And so that leads us to the 2nd subpoint here, which is explanation. So we see identification, now explanation. Joseph explains what has really been happening from God's perspective. So look at verses five to eight. As we walk our way through this passage, verses five to eight, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Three times in this short space, Joseph says, it was God who sent me here. It was God who did this work. That is why I am in Egypt. God did it. And three reasons are given, which all serve to sort of fill out the picture, uh, to preserve life, to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. This idea of remnant on earth and many point to something beyond the family. As you you see these words, remnant and many, you're meant to go back, to scroll back to Abraham. You're meant to go back to those promises God gave to Abraham where he promised many descendants more than the dust of the earth or the stars of heaven. Innumerable descendants. And we know from the New Testament that that involves all those who would come in through Christ. So we see here, Language that points us beyond just that the nation would be preserved. But God is preserving you, Christian, in this story. Because he is preserving the line of Christ through which we become offspring of Abraham. The remnant on the earth also reminds us that in the new heaven and new earth, who is it that will occupy the earth? A remnant of humanity. From Adam and Eve on, those whom God has sovereignly Saved And so, God is preserving something far beyond even these brothers and their children and their wives and their family members. He's preserving us, Christians, here today. And not only did God send Joseph ahead of them, as Psalm 105.17 reiterates, as we just read a little while ago, but God also exalted Joseph as father or chief advisor to Pharaoh and ruler over all of Egypt. God did not just providentially set it up to where Joseph would end up in Egypt, but he providentially set that up so that when Joseph got to Egypt, which is what we've been seeing and following, he would be exalted and exalted and exalted to the highest place in the land. But here's the comfort to the brothers. Verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God can you imagine how much comfort those words would have brought the brothers the brothers are still trying to process right i mean you need you need significant amount of time to process this but joseph has had much time to process it and joseph gives the explanation here it was not you who sent me but God yes As we've already discussed, these brothers were guilty. Joseph is not saying that they're not guilty. He's not just pushing aside their sin. We've seen their guilt over the last few chapters. We've seen God deal with their guilt. We've seen God bring their guilt to their minds. We've seen them recognize their own guilt. We've seen Joseph draw out that guilt. Yes, they are guilty of evil towards their brother. But what Joseph is saying is that God's saving purposes overshadow their own evil intentions. That what was really happening, most fundamentally, most ultimately, was the working of this great God. This was God's doing. The sovereign God, listen to this, the sovereign God used their sin as a means of their salvation. Their own sin, their own act of sin was itself a means of getting Joseph to Egypt so that they themselves could be saved. Yes, they were responsible for their sin, but God was sovereign over All of it. Listen to the description given here by John Calvin. Joseph was sold by his brothers for no other reason than that they wanted him out of the way. The same act is ascribed to God, but with a very different purpose. Notice the same act is ascribed to God. God did this to provide the house of Jacob with food in time of famine. Hence, it is clear that although God at first seems to act in the same way as wicked men, in the end, their crime is a far cry from his wonderful justice. And that's why Joseph will go on and say later, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Hear this, Christian. God did not merely allow Joseph to be sold into slavery. God did not merely permit Joseph to be sold into slavery. God ordained Joseph. Joseph to be sold into slavery. I have a question for you. Does your view of God's sovereignty match Joseph's? You know, we can bring forward many YouTube videos of philosopher types, Christians of various stripes to debate issues regarding God's sovereignty and human free will, but here's the question that we have to answer. Does our view of God's sovereignty sit under this, what we are reading so plainly, so clearly here in Genesis 45? Or do you have your own view of God's sovereignty that you've picked up from various places? Meditate on this. If you struggle with the doctrines of grace, if you struggle with the, the idea that God would, would, would be behind ultimately all that happens in the world. And that God's purposes are perfect in the end. And that God's wisdom governs over even human hearts and human decisions and human actions and will. That God saves some for his eternal glory. Those whom by his free grace he chooses before the foundation of the world to be saved. If these are hard doctrines for your ears. Meditate on what is plainly taught here in the story of Joseph. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. There's an important application here. This view of God's sovereignty, notice this, this is beautiful. This view of God's sovereignty is eminently practical because it fuels forgiveness and contentment. Do you see that in Joseph? Why in the world does Joseph forgive his brothers? How can Joseph forgive his brothers for what they did? This atrocious act, they did not just throw him in the pit. They were going to slaughter him. But Reuben stepped forward and, and they were going to just leave him in the pit to starve and thirst to death. But, but Judah stepped in and said, let's just sell him. And he, and he wept and he cried and he, he begged them in his distress. Please, guys, don't do this to me. And they were eating their lunch. Oh, man, if ever he could get them, he could do whatever he wants to them now. How in the world is he able to forgive them in this way? It is because of his view of God's sovereignty. Do you see that? His his understanding of God's sovereignty fuels his forgiveness. And therefore, it fuels the reconciliation between these brothers. Sometimes I hear people say, when we talk about these issues of election and God's sovereignty... You oftentimes will hear people say, well, it doesn't really matter anyway. It doesn't matter for real life. Let's just get past all of that and just kind of do the Christian life together. And what I want you to understand this morning from this story, get this clearly in view, is that these are not merely abstract or academic questions. These are not just heady, up in the clouds, theologian topics. These are eminently practical for life. It is Joseph's doctrine of God that fuels his forgiveness and his contentment in the midst of all the suffering that he has faced. It does matter what you think about God's sovereignty. It will matter and you will see it when you suffer. You'll see it when good things happen. You'll see it when you achieve certain things in your life. You'll see it when you see uh, when God's The character of Christ is growing in you. And your response to that. How you meditate on that. Think about that. It is imminently practical. What you think about God's sovereignty in salvation. It matters. It is as practical as Proverbs 16. Verse 9 says. The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. God is in control. And one day. We will understand much of what we now have many questions about. Much that we see in our world that makes no sense to us. One day we will have full understanding. Third, we see instruction. So we, we see identification and explanation. Now we come to instruction. We already know what is first and foremost in Joseph's mind. Immediately after identifying himself, he asks, Is my father still alive? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? That's the first question he asks. And this concern for his father is what we see in his instructions to his brothers. Look at verses nine to 13. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. These instructions begin... And end with this word, hurry. Hurry. Go to my father. Bring my father. They bracket all of this that he says to his brothers, these instructions. It's all about his dad, it's all about Jacob. Joseph wants Jacob to know what God has done. And I think that's probably at the front of his mind. Yes, this is a son who longs to see his father, but this is also a servant of God who knows that his dad needs to know what God is doing. What God has been up to. Joseph wants Jacob to know what God has done. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. That's the first part of the message that They are to deliver to Jacob. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. The God of your father has not abandoned you, Dad. He's with you. He's with you because he's been with me. He's been with you insofar as he's been with me. He has done this great thing. Come and see what he has done. That's the message to his father Joseph wants Jacob with him in safety and he tells him that a portion of Egypt, the land of Goshen, has been set aside for him and all his household. And finally, we come to affection. We have identification, explanation, instruction. And now we come finally to affection. You have to love these verses where Joseph lovingly embraces all of his brothers. Look at verses 14 to 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is sweet and full reconciliation between the brothers. We've been waiting for this. We've been pining for this, anticipating this. Between the brothers, between the ancestors of the nation, between the people of God. And it reminds me Romans chapter 12 verse 10. You know, being in church with a lot of different kinds of people is hard. We know that there are disagreements among God's people, and we disagree on a whole host of things. And even now, as I look out on us as a congregation, undoubtedly there is uh, perhaps tension between uh, some of you, or some of us, or whatever, there, there, there sometimes is, are uh, points of tension between God's people. And I love the words of Paul in Romans 12:10, after he's given these glorious 11 chapters of theology, ending with this praise for God's mercy that will happen in heaven at the end of time when both Jew and Gentile all will praise Him for His mercy through Christ. And he says, Romans 12, 10, very practically, love one another with brotherly affection. We are are seeing in this chapter of Genesis an illustration of what brotherly affection looks like. This is the way we are to love each other as Christians. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is sovereignty-fueled forgiveness. Maybe you need to forgive someone in this church. Maybe you have bitterness in your heart. Maybe you just don't like someone here, and you think that's okay just to harbor a dislike for someone who is your brother or your sister. Whatever it is they've done to you, know this. The same that was true for Joseph is true for you. Your understanding of God's sovereignty in their offense will fuel your ability to forgive them and to be reconciled to them when you trust that God has used them even in sanctifying you. This passage also reminds me of Hebrews 2.12 where the writer of Hebrews puts these words from Psalm 22, into the mouth of our Lord, into the mouth of Christ. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I I remember after a sermon some time ago, a teenager walked up to me, this was several years ago, and said, I don't understand. How is Jesus called our brother? Wonderful opportunity to talk about that the fact that Christ is, yes, our Lord and our God, as Thomas says, when he falls on his face before Jesus, my Lord and my God, and yet he is our brother. He is our friend. He is our brother in that he became like us in every way, yet without sin. He, on in our behalf, substituted himself and bore our sins on the cross and now as our great brother, as our elder brother, he ushers us into the praise of God and that's why these words are put in his mouth. I will tell of your name to my brothers. It is Christ who brings us to the Father. It is Christ who has passed through the heavenlies and through whom we too will pass through the heavenlies. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your Phrase. So we see a shocking revelation. Secondly, we come to a supplied return. Look at verses 16 to 24. 16 to 24. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. And bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The Sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Here we see two things. If you want to write these down, we see Pharaoh's favor and Joseph's sending. First, Pharaoh's favor, just as Pharaoh showered Joseph with favor, so too does he shower Joseph's family with favor. The language here is very similar to what we saw back in chapter 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. The same is true of this, that when Pharaoh heard, Of the coming of Joseph's brothers. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So we see this favor towards the family. Pharaoh offers a permanent settlement in Egypt. The best of the land. As well as provisions for the journey. This is an incredible offer. But it matches the offer given to Joseph himself. I think it also suggests the love that Pharaoh had for Joseph. It reminds us of Joseph's faithfulness to his unbelieving Lord. Joseph's faithfulness to his unbelieving master. You know, think about Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. And the the respect that he shows Nebuchadnezzar. You know, sometimes as Christians we can be... uh, we can, we can lack the kind of respect and courtesy for unbelievers, especially unbelieving superiors, that Scripture calls us to. We can kind of take on a mindset that says, you know, well, they're, just, just write them off because they're an unbeliever. Even so, Joseph reminds us that we defer to them. We serve them. We fall underneath them. We submit to them. And we do this because we love Christ doesn't matter whether they're a believer or not. If they are over us. We submit to them. And we love them. And we serve them. And Joseph shows that. And Pharaoh and Joseph were probably quite close. Second, we see Joseph sending. Joseph follows Pharaoh's directives. He gives the wagons and provisions for the journey. He gives gifts to his brothers and his father. A change of clothes to the brothers. Remember? Their clothes are hanging off of them. Do you remember what they did when the silver cup was found in Benjamin's bag? They ripped their clothes. This was a a, a Semitic sign of, of, of mourning. A Semitic sign of grief, of distress. Remember when Jesus comes forward and stands before Caiaphas and he says, essentially, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God. And Caiaphas there rips his clothes How can this man blaspheme in this way against the God of Israel? What further proof do we need against him? This goes back very early in this family, this ripping of the clothes. And these brothers' clothes are just hanging off. And Joseph says, let's get rid of those displays of grief. Let's get rid of those signs and symbols of mourning, of the old. And now a new time is ushering in. A new time of understanding God, God's provisions. A new time of living within God's salvation. A new time of reconciled family members. He clothed them with new garments and five changes of clothes for Benjamin. Along with 300 shekels of silver. Once again, showering his brother. Who had nothing to do with him being sold into slavery. In 20 years, he's missed the opportunity to love on his younger brother. And now he pours his affection upon him. 20 donkeys for his father, loaded with gifts and provisions for the journey. But notice this. Not only does Joseph send his brothers away with provisions, he also sends them away with wisdom. Look at verse 24. As they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. You can imagine what they would be quarreling about. I mean, some of them were not going to, Reuben especially, Reuben did not want anyone to do anything to Joseph. And so you could see a situation where they're going back and they're realizing now everything that happened and they're just living on the horizontal plane without regard for God's sovereignty and what God had done. And they're just arguing with each other, finger pointing, getting angry. You can imagine all the different kinds of conversations that would have erupted. Joseph wisely sees this and he says, do not quarrel on the way. As Proverbs 30, verse 33 says, the churning, listen to this, The churning or stirring up of anger produces strife. Where does strife come from? James talks about this. Where does strife come from? It comes from that stuff that's churning in our hearts. That's why there are disagreements between us in a local church. That's why there are disagreements in your family, your earthly family. There's churning, stirring up of anger, and it produces strife. They are to eat up, Joseph is saying, they are to eat up their anger with their doctrine. So that there is no quarreling or strife. I want to say this to you, Christian. Let your doctrine devour your anger. Just as we have with Joseph. Let your understanding of God's sovereignty, as I said before, let your doctrine of God, let your view of God and his purposes and his ways devour all that bitter anger that you have in your heart against your husband or your wife or your child or your brother or your parent or the person sitting on the other side of the church from you or maybe right next to you or in front of you or behind you. Let your doctrine devour Your anger. And be at peace. Finally we come to a skeptical reception. Look at verses 25 to 28. You have to love these verses. 25 to 28. So they went up out of Egypt. And came to the land of Canaan. To their father Jacob. And they told him Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What an incredible moment this must have been for these brothers, On the one hand, they must now come clean about their past evil deed and lies to their father. Right? It's not going to work to continue to suppress that. We're not told that explicitly. But I think we can infer that they have to tell him about the lie. They have to tell him what they did to their brother Joseph. You can imagine the angst. And stress of that. But on the other hand, (laughs) praise God for the other hand, they are about to deliver the most precious news their father could ever receive. And on top of that, they have Benjamin with them too. Remember how much he wanted to make sure Benjamin came back? Not just do we have Benjamin, but guess what, Dad? Joseph is alive. What an incredible message it was. Verse 26. Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Breathtaking. What? Alive? Ruler of Egypt? Jacob is understandably stunned. He's so stunned that he's described here as being numb. You know, when you think of being numb, you think of someone poking you after you've gone to the dentist or maybe you bite your cheek and you know that's not good. I didn't feel it, but I know that's going to hurt later. Your canine goes into your lip, your numb lip. He doesn't, he doesn't even feel it. It's, it's as though it just bounces right off of him. Understandably, his reception Is one of disbelief. Skepticism. But the brothers begin to share more details. And to show him all the gifts and provisions. And then we read these beautiful words. That we've been waiting for. As we we empathize with Jacob. Anyone who has children. Certainly immediately empathize with Jacob. The spirit of their father Jacob. Revived. He went from skepticism to jubilation. He went from skepticism to being in a state of excitement about seeing his son. God has been faithful to me. He has not abandoned me. I will see my son again. These are the words of the heartbeat of Joseph, of Jacob. These are the words that are coming from his soul. This is what's stirring around in his mind. In a flash, he sees that the God of Abraham and Isaac has been once again faithfully the God of Jacob. And he realizes he's going to get to see his son. Both vertically and horizontally, in one moment, his spirit is just elevated to the clouds. So our chapter ends with words that have moved from skepticism to confidence, from sadness to joy. It is enough. It is enough. That's all I need. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. All this time, as we finish this morning, I want you to think about Jacob. I want you to think about his heart, his mind, his experience for these 20 years. I want you to to just imagine all that he would have thought and felt. We've gotten little snapshots. All this time, Jacob has been left wondering. And yet God was working. So here's the question to you, Christian. Do you feel... Like you have been left wondering, just where is God? In years. It's been decades. Decades! I mean, God, come on a week, a month, a year, a few years. It's been decades under this cloud. Decades. Under this darkness. Maybe you feel. Like you've been left. Wondering. And you say to yourself. If only I could see. I'm left wondering. Okay. God is working. But if only I could just see. Just, just, Just park that veil for a moment. Let me see on the other side of that. That God is working. And I'll just continue wondering. But I'll wonder better. If only I could see. But. Child of God. He has given you sight. He has given you sight. You can see the sight of faith based on his word. You have eyes to see, Christian. You don't need to see specifically what he's doing in your life. You see what he did here. And you know that this God is your God. The eyes of faith that only the Spirit can give. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18 may describe well how you feel in the first part for this light momentary affliction. Maybe you would say it doesn't feel very light at all. Imagine Paul said that Paul did not experience, from any objective observer's point of view, light afflictions. But he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't even compare it to the Grand Canyon, that's pitiful. You can't even compare it to a night full of stars. It's pitiful. You cannot compare it to the Milky Way. It's pitiful. To bask in the glory of our redeeming God. Is immeasurably greater than any experience. Or any sight. Or any enjoyment we could ever have in this life. No eye has seen nor ear has heard. What God has prepared. For those who love him. Beyond all comparison. As we look. Not. To the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Your suffering will end. If nothing else, when you die, it will end. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you are a Christian, you will live forever in glory. And that's coming. It's coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of your word. We thank you for the time that you have given us to go through it. We thank you for what it says to us as Christians today and how it reminds us of who you are as the Never changing eternal God. Lord, we pray you would help us trust your goodness, trust your sovereignty, trust your providence, trust your wisdom. Father, we pray that from our doctrine we would put into practice forgiveness and mercy and grace and reconciliation and peacemaking, that we would wage war in our own hearts against bitterness. And against anger, lust to be right and to be heard. Father, would you put these things to death in us by your Spirit, who alone can give us joy and peace and love, self-control. Father, help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.